This is Take a Cue, Episode 10. Well, I would go to conventions and I would go around on the convention floor and, you know, I can remember going to different booths and I would see like Paul Lavender's name or different people or they might be there. And I was like, oh, and at first I was kind of shy to go up and meet them. And then at some point I realized what's the worst that can happen, you know, just go meet them. Welcome to Take a Cue. I'm Eric Dunno, eighth grade band and jazz band director. And I'm Jen Wise, fourth and fifth grade instrumental music teacher. We're two veteran educators with over 35 years of experience teaching music in New Jersey public schools between the two of us, and we're excited to bring teaching experiences and insights to you. So excited. Whether you're just starting out in your teaching career or you've been teaching longer than we have, this show will help you grow with new ideas and perspectives about music education and teaching. We hope you'll be just as inspired as we are every time you listen. Before we begin, if you enjoy our podcast, please help us out by doing a few super easy things. First, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Then make sure you rate the podcast and leave a review. It helps people find our show who haven't yet, and we really appreciate it. If you find that you get a lot out of our episodes, we'd be grateful if you considered becoming a monthly supporter to help us grow the podcast. You can sign up to make a secure monthly payment using the link in our show notes or on our anchor site anchor.fm forward slash take a cue. That's all one word. Also, if you have any questions or comments about anything you hear on the episode, come and interact with us on social media or take a cue podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jen, I love today's show. That was a blast. We made a new friend and she's so wonderful at composing and speaking about education. And oh yeah, today's episode is going to be great. Carol's got such a great energy about her composition and is really um, an open book when it comes to how she likes to compose, how she works with different groups. And we even get a chance to take a listen to some of her works. And if you stay till the end, there's also a special deal for our listeners. Mm -hmm. A little bonus for you all that hang out till till the end. So this one's going to be fun. Should we dive right in? I think we should. Let's do it. Well, Carol, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. We're really excited to chat with you about your music and about your experiences. So thanks so much. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. So Carol, I think before we dive into some of the composition and education questions, could you share with our listeners a little bit about your backstory? What started you on your journey? What lit your interest in music and composing? Okay. Yeah, certainly. I uh, actually was one of those people that was born into a family of musicians, I got to say. So my dad was a professional musician. He was actually the French horn professor at the university that was in our city. Uh, So Lubbock, Texas, and it's Texas Tech University. And that's actually where I got my undergrad degree. Yeah. And he was a Manhattan School of Music trained horn player, Played, got to play with New York Philharmonic and things like that. And my mom had played, she didn't, major in music or anything like that, but she had played in high school and college. And then both my siblings played instruments. And anyway, our parents started us all on piano lessons when we were really little. And that really is what lit my interest. So I can talk about my piano teacher in a minute, but she's just had such a huge role in that whole development. But I had it at home. You know, I grew up listening to 
um, orchestral recordings and just all kinds of music all the time. Yeah. And so, and I actually did a little bit of composing when I was in elementary school. So I actually got, got to, I have it right here, but um, it's called The Fun Machine. That's the first composition I oh ever wrote. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's awesome. What instrument was it for? Piano. And look at it. It's all handwritten on manuscript paper, <laughs> but it, um, it's hmm. fun. And it was like, but then I realized you could put like a, like these little dissonant seconds in there and it made it all like wow you're at a crazy carnival or something and uh but anyway it, it wasn't a big deal but I you know just kind of learned oh I could write these things down and um it won like a state contest I had to travel to our state capital and play it which was terrifying and things like that but it was but it was really fun so technically that's the first composition I guess I ever did um, once I got into middle school down in Texas, that's when we would start band and all that. I decided to pick my instrument. And even though everyone else in my family played horn, I chose trumpet. <laughs> and uh, You wanted some of the glory. Yeah, I wanted that melody. Yeah, just, I can remember telling my dad, well, doesn't the trumpet get the melody more? And he, <laughs> he just laughed. He's like, okay, sure, we can go with that if you want. But also I was like tiny, tiny, tiny. And I was like, I think I want to carry that case around more than the than the horn he oh, goes yeah. okay that's fine <laughs> he goes you can play trumpet girl it's fine but anyway I got really serious about trumpet really really serious about it and so like by the time I was in high school I, I became a an all-stater and um actually my senior year I was lucky enough to to be first chair trumpet in the Texas all-state band so that was pretty neat and, the, and kind of the reason I'm telling you about that is I went on to get my undergrad in music education from Texas Tech university. I wanted to be, become a band director, but then I went on to get my master's in trumpet performance. So I went up to Northwestern um, University up there in Evanston. As I always say, I wanted to go study with the Chicago Symphony <laughs> players. And so all oh, yeah. of these experiences were just wonderful. And so I really wasn't majoring in composition or anything, you know. So when I got out of school, I moved back down to Texas, became a band director, but I was also trying to perform. So, you know, I contacted the the principal of our San Antonio Symphony and asked, hey, can I come have a lesson with you? And so pretty soon I got on the sub list, got to play with them. And so I was performing, teaching, all kinds of stuff. And what level were you teaching? Oh, so I started out teaching middle school, which down here is uh, sixth and seventh. And that's where, that's when beginners okay. start typically down here is somewhere around sixth or seventh. Strings sometimes start a little bit earlier, fifth grade, but band, it's usually either sixth or seventh grade is when the beginners are. And then I taught high school also. And I really got into the marching band thing. And my husband was a high school marching band director at one of a really competitive high school down here. Um, and then I went back to middle school. But while I was doing that, I was always at marching rehearsals. That's where I really started writing was with marching band arranging while I was a band director. And so I started writing these shows and they started doing pretty well. And then other schools from all over started asking me, will you write my show? And so that's when I started my business, which I named Aspenwood Music, because that was a place, a website where I could showcase my marching shows. And then eventually I started, I went away from public school, started teaching call, at the college level, music education classes and trumpet and things like that. And that's when I started finally devoting more time to getting concert works written. So the marching arranging started first and then concert came from that. And and it's gradually just become more and more writing. And now it's turned into full-time writing, yeah, as my full-time career. So when you were writing for marching band, um, did you find that you were doing a lot of new compositions or mostly arranging works that had already been created? Um, well, it, it was definitely arranging 
material <laughs> from works that were already created. But I'll, I, so I say it that way because I always wanted to put my own um, stuff in there, weave my own ideas in there. Um, so some of it would be a little bit legit, but I'm not. I'm very much not a transcription-y kind of marching arranger. I try to weave other stuff throughout the show and have things that weave in and out and tie together. And so there will be my own original material in there. And that's really big right now, too, where you're going to showcase your brass. Or you're going to showcase your woodwinds. You give them these little features. And so all that stuff is really made up, even though it might have a little bit of undertones of, you know, New World Symphony or Beethoven 7 or or whatever. But um, that's kind of what I think I became known for a little bit was weaving sort of some of the classics also with things like Daft Punk or Radiohead, you know, real modern stuff, pop stuff, and then my own stuff in there too. When you started out arranging, were you doing that right off the bat? Or is this something that sort of like evolved over time that you started adding more and more of yourself to those arrangements? No, it was kind of right off the bat. We would um, sort of take a piece and it's like, we want to do this, but then we would do sort of what we call transitions into the next movement. And that's where you would put sort of your creative spin into it, I guess. So it was, um, and it was kind of out of necessity. We kind of just weren't getting our music from the person that was going to be writing it. And so I was like, well, I, you know, I think I can do that. I think I can write that ballad tonight. And let's, and then I, my favorite thing was to take a melody and, you know, some kind of tune, Cirque du Soleil, the, the music of Cirque du Soleil was very inspiring to me. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those shows, but they're so creative. So Benoit Jutra is one of their uh, great composers. And so we would, you know, you get permission to arrange these things, of course. But I love taking that, and it was beautiful in its own right. But then I would, or take something completely different, Elton John, somebody, whoever. and But then put it over different chords sometimes, or whatever those chords were. Then you bring in the melody from the Beethoven, and you put it over those modern chords. So I love just mixing all that stuff up. Do any of those shows, like from the beginning, like when you were when you were first starting to do this, stand out to you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Some of them um, from this one particular school, like one was called "Out of the Box." We would just come up with these titles that to us were creative, and the visual stuff we were going to put with it would be creative. And it it didn't have to be just one thing where the audience had to picture one thing. It was sort of open ended, like, "Hey, out of the box, what does that mean?" You know? Or we had one called "Journey Within." Or I've got a show where it's called Fire Within or just just all kinds of things. I just finished one just this season and one was titled Out There. But it's mostly the music of the planets. And so it all had to do with, you know, being out there. And one is called Wildest Dreams. And we're bringing in things like Eurythmics, you know, streams are made up sweet dreams. And um, but all kinds of things have to uh, do with dreams, Moren's dreams and then my own stuff. And so I just love shows like that that are that can be creative and then you get to put all uh, kinds of visual elements with it. And hopefully they mix, you know, so the soundtrack matches the movie. So oh, when great. you work with your schools, uh, and this was something we had talked a couple months ago with another guest, we talked a little bit about like what the creative process was. He is a, a gentleman who writes his arrangements for his own band here in Northern New Jersey, West Orange, New Jersey. And we just kind of talked about the process when it started, who came up with what. Are you working with the other directors to come up with these ideas? Or is this just something that like, this is like your superpower that you just come up with these ideas and they're kind of like already there? Yeah, no, it's definitely a collaborative effort, at least down here with a lot of the clients I have here. Uh, we'll even try to get together in person if we can. We can't all do that, but sometimes it'll be at a state convention. That's what I'm usually doing at our state convention is going around to these meetings. So we have these collaborative meetings. And so it's with the directors and with maybe there's a visual person, you know, who writes the drill 
or someone who's got more visual um, other ideas that have to do with the color guard and, and all of that. And so we try to come up with just a cohesive design. And then I'm trying to contribute uh, musical ideas. And, and again, you're, you're trying to, with these uh, circuits we're sort of competing in, you're really trying to create a range of emotions, you know, throughout the entire show. So I always talk about when I'm writing that stuff, the pacing, that's what I call the left to right you know, how the show is going basically and what emotion are you feeling now? And there's energy at times and then maybe there's, it calms down at one point and then there's high energy again and, and things like that. Of course, then in my part, writing the music, there's also the, what I call the vertical scoring and how you do that for outdoor ensembles, you know, and where are you going to score your brass and things like that so that it'll have maximum impact when you need it. And then there are things with the visual people staging, like to get your woodwinds up close to the front so that you can really hear them when you're writing a great feature for them. And, and so just all kinds of uh, collaborative elements going into effect. I'd love to dive a little deeper into your compositional techniques because I think that's that's really valuable and interesting. I, I'm curious also, before you you were able to get all these clients and, and do all this work with with marching bands in Texas, I'm kind of curious, like, who who would you call your mentors? Who mentored you along your way? You know, other than my theory teachers and stuff. And, you know, I have my piano teachers and my trumpet teachers and my band directors and all of that. But in terms of writing, it was more out of the situation I was in and observing uh, really paying attention. What is current? What is going on? What works? And some of it was trial and error, you know? So again, I was teaching with these bands that I was writing for at first. And so, yeah, there would be a few times where I would write something and we'd get it out there in the field. And it's like, wait a minute, why doesn't that have <laughs> more volume than we thought? And so that's when I realized, oh, you know, like your first trumpets can't be playing on a third space C. <laughs> when so I'm not talking about a little band that, or anything like that, but it's just there was a certain level. And so, you know, if you can get your first trumpets, for example, like more on top of the staff, F, written FGA, they're going to, it's just going to have way more impact. And same where you put your first trombone or your first mellophone and things like that. Uh, some of it was trial and error a little bit, but also paying attention to other arrangements we'd played before. What did these arrangers do? One um, marching band arranger that I did pay attention to, and I just adore him and we're good friends now. And I used to say, I want to be like him one day. And his name's Key Poland. You know, I just used to really look up to him and in my mind think, I want to do that one day. I used to tell him, I want to do what you do. You get paid to do this. <laughs> and so, uh, so I would pay attention to what he did. And uh, there are others too. But I did, it's not like I had a teacher or anything like that. And then same thing with, you know, concert band. I was a band director. I taught those levels. So I had played things by Ann McGinty and, you know, Robert Sheldon and just <laughs> the list goes on of ones that I just really enjoyed programming their music with my bands for different levels. And so I paid attention to kind of, why does this work? Why does this work so well? And then I just knew developmentally where, what my brass should be doing and what my woodwind should be doing and things like that. Carol, getting your music like out there, I know you said you're already, you're already like involved in these bands and teaching these bands and then, but having your music like read, reach just beyond the groups that you had FaceTime with all the time, how did that happen for you? How, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? So getting your music out there, I feel like it's been pretty well received all along the way. Probably the newest, again, the marching band thing just sort of kept snowballing, I guess I should say. And so that was just mm -hmm. really neat how that happened. And so, and, and then it just, most of my friends were directors, were marching band, or not marching band, just band directors. And so when I did finally start writing some more concert music, I did have 
people that were willing to to play it. I didn't necessarily do a ton of that, but my first commission, actually, I was working at the university, uh, Texas Lutheran University, and they actually commissioned me to write my first commission ever. And it was in memory of one of our faculty members who had, was tragically killed in an accident. And so I was like, oh, I would be honored to write this. So that was really neat. And I got a little bit of feedback from that director and, you know, it seemed to go well. And then I happened to, you know, submit it to be put onto the Texas list. We have a list uh, if you're going to play something at our UIL contest. And it actually happened to get on the list, which is the first thing I ever got on the list. And then I kind of realized it was interesting. That kind of made some people pay attention. Sometimes if one little thing like that can happen, it can give you a little more validity, I guess, <laughs> that, oh, she actually can write. Sure. And rather than just pestering people, will you play this in your rehearsal? So again, then that kind of started to snowball too. I started to just write more. And I, I learned to not be shy though. That was the other thing. So when I... And again, I had these examples. So just like I said, hey, I want to do that with Marching Men Ranger like he is doing. Well, when I saw Anne McGinty or other writers, I was like, I, I think I could do that because I think I know what would work well for bands. So I sort of had a vision. That was the first thing. And it's like, okay, how do you get there? Well, I would go to conventions and I would go around on the convention floor. And, you know, I can remember going to different booths and I would see like Paul Lavender's name or different people or they might be there. And I was like, oh. And at first I was kind of shy to go up and meet them. And then at some point I realized what's the worst that can happen, you know, just go meet them, you know? And so at Carl Fisher, um, Larry Clark was one of the first ones. And I got where I would just go up enough, I guess, to a couple of them. And finally one of them just said, I, you want to send me some scores? <laughs> they were kind of like, you don't need to keep introducing yourself. you know. <laughs> so I just learned to not be shy because <laughs> You know, you you got nothing to lose. And now, you guys, it's so much easier. Then you really had to get a contact in email. But now they've got these websites and they are encouraging people to upload music. And they're very, what I learned is, um, you know, if they think you've got any talent at all, they'll work with you. And maybe you don't quite get what's really going to work in terms of the big market. Because I was just thinking of where I live. Um, But they educate you a lot about that. And also they're willing to um, give you some feedback. And if you're willing to take it, usually it's really good advice. Like that first one, Beautiful River, the first commission I ever did. It was so funny because the guy who owned RBC Publishing, he said he wanted to publish that. And I said, oh, okay, what does that mean? And we're talking about it. And he goes, now, you know, you've got this beautiful oboe solo at the beginning. And it's really beautiful. It's a grade three. He goes, but if we cue that in flute and alto sax, it will be accessible for many, many more organizations and many more band directors will be interested in looking at it because they're not always not going to have a great oboe soloist. And I was like, well, that makes sense. You know, (laughs) stuff you don't think about when you have the oboe sound in your mind, you know. Have any of the publishers that you've worked with asked you to change something that you were, you know, felt very uh, strongly about like, this is, this is how I'm envisioning this particular part of this piece or how this should sound. And one of the publishers is saying, well, if you want to be a grade two, you got to do you got to do it this way. So not a huge extent in terms of that content right there is awful. We want you to change that, you know, but but I love that, you know, section. It, I haven't had too much of that. I didn't I didn't really mean it like like awful just saying like, "Oh, you know, we're thinking a grade 2 and a half for this, but you know, that trumpet solo is definitely a grade 4." And you're like, "But that is how I'm feeling it." Well, okay, so at first, for sure, like there was a grade 3 Cedar Canyon sketches, one of my favorite pieces. You know, and I had done this whole thing and written this whole thing, and they really liked it. But it was uh, 
same kind of thing that what I'd done with the ending. They were like, you know what? If you brought back some of the stuff you had at the beginning, let's do that in a different way. I think it'll be more cohesive. It's getting a little too hard the way you have it. There are too many sections for it to be really state of grade three. And even then it's more like probably a 3.5. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And so early on, maybe there were a couple of pieces like that where I had to do a little bit more um, messing with some things. But yes, getting it to fit the grade level is probably, and now I, I, I don't struggle with that because um, I sort of know. I, I've learned, you know, from dealing with it. And they've, and then, you know, soon after I got the first couple written and we kind of got them in going, then they're like, look, these are kind of our range guidelines. So then when you can really see, oh, da, da, da. And in this, with this grade level, now first clarinet can go above the break, but they're not supposed to cross back and forth. Second clarinet needs to stay below the break the whole time. You know, once you, once I realized those kind of parameters, it's like, oh, okay, well, that totally makes sense. And then now we'll write that way. Again, I've got really good feedback and learned from it. But you're right. Uh, some of it did have to do with if we want this to stay a three, but if we keep it this way, we may need to push it into the four or same with a two to a three. Yeah, certainly. When you're starting a new piece, are you, are you thinking like, oh, I, I've got this melody. This would, this is a, this is going to be a grade two, or do you just kind of start seeing where it develops? And then like, how, how does the, how do these pieces come together for you? Well, early on, maybe when I was writing just stuff more for fun, I had this idea, you know, then I would, I would kind of have a grade level in mind, but maybe then it would morph into something else. And, but there wasn't a specific reason that I was writing it. Well, now that when I'm writing things and they're commissioned, uh, you know, you talk about that right up front. So the person commissioning it, what grade level are we wanting? So I always start out now with the grade level in mind, because that's going to affect so many things like range, of course, ranges, what, and that's going to affect the melodies you can do or how much you can leap around or should it be more stepwise. Grade 0.5, you know, we're going to stick to those first five or six notes <laughs> of the B flat scale. That's that's where I live. Yeah, yep. exactly. And so, but so, what's really interesting about that? Depending on what it, okay, grade level. Yeah, I definitely think about that first. Then, okay, what kind of piece am I writing? And that usually starts to generate one of two things: either a melody, usually the melody. I'm very melody driven, or the the kind of rhythmic groove. Maybe that's one of the um, components that I want to reinforce in this one. I'm, we'll probably talk about that in a minute. So, with that melody, then I got to decide what key am I going to put this in because of the grade level. And one of my big considerations is the clarinet, because if I want them to play the melody at some point, is it going to be in a place where they're crossing back and forth over the break? That's not so great for, you know, maybe for second year players, certainly. Same thing with trumpets. I need to decide what key or when I get to, maybe I'm going to bring this melody back at the end. You know, it just can't go out of their range for where they are developmentally. Same thing with low brass. Is it going too low? You know, so things like that. That's one of the challenges with the younger pieces, younger grade level pieces, is making something interesting that doesn't sound like something that's already been written a thousand times. But that's why some things sound like that is because you you have some limitations like that. Full disclosure, I, I also do a little bit of arranging for marching band here in northern New Jersey as well. And I know like when a director comes to me and says, hey, we want to do these pieces and we want to try to keep it on the easier side or, you know, or, you know, carte blanche, write whatever you want to write, which never happens, does it? I'm always like, okay. Sometimes I don't like having the constraints. I'm saying, all right, well, I know that like this year's trumpet players are kind of a little weak. So we really can't go above like E, like fourth, fourth space E. And I'm like, really? You want a big impact there, but we can't go above E. You know, but there are other times when I feel like I really appreciate having those 
constraints because it gives me some like framework. How do you feel about the constraints, especially like when you're writing for five or six notes? Um, do, do you like having those kinds of uh, guidelines or do you find it really restrictive? I guess on the project, on the particular project, sometimes it's restrictive. Sometimes I feel like I have to think about like, wait a minute, did I just write this kind of melody in this piece that I did two months ago? Um, you know, when I have a whole bunch that I'm that are going on back to back. And so that is one reason I like to sort of, as my writing schedule, I like to kind of vary the grade level. So I'm doing a one. Now I'm going to concentrate on this three that I have to do. Now, to, But a lot of it has to do with the calendar, though, when you've decided when these due dates are going to be. But sometimes it's fine. I mean, I do like having, you know, just the template. And I know this is my instrumentation. But yeah, sometimes it can feel a little restraining, for sure. Yeah, you just have to come up with other ways that are going to make the piece unique. And maybe that has to do with the percussion instrument. Or... You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of trying to do rhythmically really cool things that they can handle. You know, when I was teaching Ben, we were doing all kinds of patterns with rhythm sheets. They were clapping and counting all kinds of sure. combinations of eighth notes and eighth rests. Well, you do some of that in different combinations that can actually give what I call perceived syncopation. Or sometimes like this one piece I wrote called Night Fury, it's going along and, you know, then I throw in a couple of three, four bars in there. It's a grade one, 1.5. But the winds don't ever have to do anything during the three, four. So it's just the percussion and the winds just have to go one, two, three, two, two, three, play again, back in four, four, you know, so it, it can give it this uh, new element of interest and where they all think, wow, we're playing something with different mm -hmm. meters in it, or it's really cool. But they didn't really have to do much during that. You know, in percussion, you know, they're not having to work forever on their tone and steady air and stuff like that and breathing and everything. So they're able to start doing, I think, more developed rhythms sooner. So you can give them more responsibility. So it sounds like you like the challenge of making it seem more difficult than it is. You know, if you can write something that, uh, yeah, that sounds harder than it is. I, I just love that, you know, or if you write something that is able to get on a state list, like a grade three, but they consider it an easy three. Well, lots of people will feel that it's accessible and, and can get it. But if you write something that's three and it's a hard three, then it's like, oh, darn, maybe if that had gotten on and it's a four, <laughs> you know, but it's just, you never know. I mean, and you just really try to do it the best you can every time you write one and right. make it uh, consistent. And that's what publishers are looking for too, is consistency. And I feel that's what directors are looking for when they're going to purchase music, you know. Um, that's the beauty of, of there being some of these parameters and guidelines is that you kind of know, hey, when I go here and I look at this, what they're calling a two, I kind of know what to expect. So Carol, you already gave us some really great uh, advice about like getting out there and, and uh, introducing yourself and presenting yourself. Do you, do you have any more advice for, our, um, you know, band director, arranger, composer types out there, or um, maybe some of our band directors that are guiding their students towards composition. What, what would you say, you know, um, how, how do we get them there? How do we get them thinking this way? It's funny. I'm sure I don't have the exact right answer by any means, because I didn't necessarily know I would end up here. And it, it seems like lots of people take different paths to get where they are, or their paths change. Like, as in my case, there were definitely building blocks that helped me be able to do this. And so one building block that I didn't have much control over was that my parents stuck me in piano lessons <laughs> when I was little. But I learned that became my thing, though. Music became my thing. That whole journey like, is where I, I felt good at something. But all of my music teachers, they helped me develop confidence because 
I just realized, oh, I, I can do this and I like this. And so I do think I developed my passion early on. So certainly some of those theory, like building blocks really helped. So those kids now who are able to take AP theory um, at their high schools and stuff is, that's pretty cool. You know, that's neat. They're going to have some of that. And not that you have to know everything in the theory book. Really, a lot of the stuff you're writing, if you're good at spelling just even basic chords, you'll be probably fine. And then if you get some keyboard skills where you can experiment a little but um, you know, I really do think the composition and the creativity comes first, theory comes later, you know, that's you analyze what was this person doing. And we all studied theory. That's what we were doing, analyzing what all these other composers did, that things that worked well. So I do think some of those rules that we've learned about scoring are are good because it's over time we've learned that is what sounds you know, good in a lot of cases. Are there some rules that can be broken? Sure. Especially as you get into more modern type things. But I think it's that whole deal about learning the rules before you start to break them, (laughs) um, I think is important. So the first thing I would say for people who are interested in composition is, you know, go for it. Don't be shy, you know, go for it. Write down things. Um, We've got all this technology now that allows you to hear things played back. You know, when I first was writing stuff by pencil, I had to play it on my keyboard myself, you know. So it's so wonderful. You can hear playback with these programs and so on. But those can be deceiving. Those can sound better than than if you pass it out into a live ensemble. Oh, why does that not sound so good? Well, maybe because you have your, you're expecting eighth grade trumpets to be up on a high written D. You know, that doesn't... (laughs) Oh my gosh, uh, totally. The first couple of years that I arranged for for a marching band, I remember going out there and hearing it and going, God, that doesn't sound at all like <laughs> I imagined it would. Yeah. yeah. The computer doesn't have any trouble. Those ideas sound awesome. Yes. On the yes. computer. Yeah. So that's, you know, when I'm teaching like orchestration and things like that, even at the university, um, it's like, you know, we're so glad we have, you know, these computer assisted programs, but you really have to get a handle on ranges and then spelling chords correctly. So that's one of the biggest mistakes I will find when I'm like grading little projects and stuff. I think you wanted that to be a D minor chord, but you know, you have E's in there, you know, those are going to be wrong notes. Those sound like wrong notes. So you do have to, at some point, you need to be able to start understanding some basic chords. So even, you know, anyway, with, so even with younger students, I think you can kind of start to set up some little exercises or little assignments that where you start small back to the just, okay, go for it. What I would say though, that has to do with scoring and spelling chords correctly and things like that. Learn your craft. Like we tried some things with marching band and wow, why did that sound like that? You know, so really learn, pay attention. When I'm designing shows, I'm watching all these other groups and what do, what do I like about that? Wow, that's really cool how my interest never left. Why was that? You know, and that, and that's sort of more the creative part, but yes, yeah, scoring is huge. And so same thing with concert really learn your craft, learn what works idiomatically. You know, there are things that are really nice for brass players to get to do, little figures. And there are things that are great for woodwinds to get to do. So idiomatic type components as you start building your compositions and learning some things about basic form. There are certain things that just seem logical, like with a melody, when you're singing it, perhaps it starts here, it goes up, and then it comes down again. And then maybe there's the B part of the melody does the opposite or something. There's sometimes some logic. We always think of composition, oh, it's just this thing that just flew out of my brain and onto my paper, you know. But there's actually, sometimes things end up being more pleasing, especially in this world we're talking about, different grade levels of music that band directors are going to purchase and they're going to have to live with it for weeks and the students are going to have to. And so it needs to be enjoyable, but it needs to work also. 
Um, you don't want to sure. write something that then it poses all these problems that they're going to have to mess with. You know, you don't want young students to have to play a bunch of B naturals. They're not, they, no. Let's start with some other notes. They're still trying to get a grasp on concert F and concert B flat and how to make that a beautiful sound. Now we add some valves, you know, th- those kinds of things. I, yeah. So knowing your craft and knowing what what it is you're writing for. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I teach eighth grade general music one, one class a day. And one of the projects that we go over is a composition project where it's really not like a, hey, you can start writing whatever you want to write. It's more about like learning several different, like what's a chord tone? How do you use chord tones in ways that make sense? How do you use non-chord tones in ways that support the chord tones and all this stuff? So it's really not just like write whatever you want. And, and the idea is it's supposed to be singable and it's you know by somebody who may not be a trained singer. So you can't write like ninths and stuff like that of jumps. And a lot of times kids have a lot of trouble with that because they just want to write whatever they think sounds really cool on the computer and trying to say, well, you have to think about it, how it works for the player or the singer is really important. So you, you, I love that you touched on that too. For sure. And I think if you're able to give them, like I said, smaller projects to work on at first. So I would try to give some param- parameters if I were doing this with younger students. Like, hey, we're going to do this little composition project. There's all these notes and everything. No, no, no. We're going to, let's pick either, you know, let's pick one key. Let's all just stick with B flat major for a second, you know. And I would, honestly, I would do something like, either decide if you want to do something for woodwinds only or for brass only or for strings only, you know, if you, if you have all those kinds of instruments together, you're going to pick four instruments and then you could even start with something like a chorale. So then they can learn about SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and just normal scoring like that, you know, give them something public domain that's, they could just, Hey, I'm going to just learn how to score this. And they'll realize, Oh, that works with these instruments, with these ranges and then maybe you could turn it into, okay, now you're going to start with this chorale, then you're going to add a B part where one person gets to play this other melody that sort of works with while the chorale's going on. So there's a little creativity, but, you know, like chord tones, they kind of have to match at the right time or something. Or you could set up a little thing, let's do just an ABA form, you know, so maybe you do something, this little melody for like 16 measures, then there's this melody, now bring the other melody back. But I think that's one way to sort of get their toes into it and they come up, it's not so overwhelming and huge with this blank score in front of them, but they have some parameters and they can learn to build some things that actually are successful. I was, I was listening to you talk and I was thinking about how my beginners say to me all the time, like, how do you play all those instruments? How do you play them all? Like, cause you know, I model all, all, all the band instruments for them. And I just say to them, I'm like, get really, really good at one instrument. And then the rest will just kind of be part of you. Like, and I, you know, they're always like, they're, they're like, wait, you're playing the trumpet part on the, on the saxophone. Like, wh- how are you doing that? And I'm like, that's the part yeah. I can't teach you today. Tomorrow. <laughs> like, it's like, we got to get you really good at the instrument in your hand. I feel like I've run into, you know, some, some composers that only sat in an ensemble for so long and then forget what it feels like to be near the flutes and have them need all those notes and all that range. And several other composers, just the other day we were doing a, another, another webinar thing, but some of them were like, yeah, I started writing for my groups. You know, I was teaching beginners and I just needed these sorts of little things. And so I just wrote them out and we did them. And then, you know, so also they were learning by trial and error, but they also just already had knowledge of where they, what they wanted their students doing at that moment. 
in the year. I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually something I wanted to ask about was self-publishing versus publishing with other companies. Or how many companies are you published with? It's about six. Well, um, wow. So I've got some through. Well, Carl Fisher was the first one that I was published under. Well, actually, RBC was the first one. Beautiful River. And then it was Carl Fisher and then Excelsia. And then I've got one with Wingert Jones. Um, and I've got some others with RBC also. Aspenwood is mine. So I do some self-publishing with that. And then with Alfred, I had done something recently with their sound innovations, you know, these solos um, with that. So I think those are the main ones. Yeah. So do they come to you um, and say, hey, we need a piece that kind of checks these boxes. And then you're like, hey, I'll write that for you. Or do you write it first? And then they go, hey, that sounds really good. We'd like to publish that one. And it started out, I thought I would just self-publish everything. Lots of people probably think that, which is great. And some people that works. I realized, and after talking to some of them, so I decided I did want to be published through some others. Just again, sort of that validity, maybe. To me, sometimes I think if you can get something out there and other people thought it was worthy of being published, then it just gives it more validity. I don't know. So that's why I started giving some to Carl Fisher. And again, early on, we would make some edits and then it got to be where there were fewer edits because again, then I knew what the expectations were for the grade levels and so on. Yeah. And then when Excelsior came along, I started giving um, lots to them. And, and so now it's more like I have these pieces that I've written through the year. And so then there's usually a time early summer when we submit or whenever it is for the different publishers. And so then I'll usually send them. These are the new tunes that I did this year. And with me now, I've done enough business with them. We have a relationship. And so it's sort of like they probably, you know, save some spots. And you try to kind of get, they taught me this too. You don't want to give them like six grade ones and nothing else. Because then that year, all of your grade ones are competing with each other. Because band directors can only buy so much music. You have budgets. <laughs> so we call it the rainbow. right? I refer to it as the rainbow. And so each year now when I can set up my commission schedule, and I'm, I feel blessed that I pretty much am just writing on commission now. And so I try to schedule those out where I'm not overloaded. So maybe I'll do a couple of each grade level each year. Last year, I had a lot of grade fours to do. And it's so I'm having to spread those out and so I've gotten where it's like, okay, I need to push that one to the next year. Can you do that next year? You know, that those kinds of, we'll have those kinds of conversations. But it does sometimes depend on what they need. So sometimes I'll even ask, is there room for another like Hall Halloween type piece? I haven't done one of those in a long time or, you know, holiday. So there's definitely directors are looking for things like that sometimes. I'm kind of curious because you're talking about, you know, you do these commissions and everything and as a band director, I'm always like, oh, what's what's it like in Texas? What's it like in this program? What's it like when you interact with all these programs and these band directors? What are some things that stand out to you like excellent programs? Like there are great things happening here. So, yeah, I love it when I go into when you get to go and actually interact with a rehearsal or even the performance of the new the new piece. That's really great. And you can't always go to all of them. Whenever you can, that's really, really neat to interact with those students and just to have this whole experience together. The outstanding programs, when you walk in and there's, you can tell there's just this commitment to detail from the directors and from the students. There's a standard. They have this pride in how they're going to do things. And that can even be, you know, as far as beginners go, just from how they have them walk into a room when rehearsal starts to the sounds that they're first making on their instrument. Are they picky about the sounds they're trying? Are they trying to make really characteristic sounds? Or are they letting them just play however? And then just accountability, you know, you can tell, is there accountability? Are they teaching them 
those all those things we know we learn in music about responsibility and and stuff. So you can see right away when programs have those kinds of components in place, I think. And I love that because usually then it's set up to where there's going to be success with every rehearsal, much less this performance that's coming up or something. But also more than that, if there is some kind of passion on some level, really trying to get students to appreciate perhaps the music. You know, our goal is we always want everybody to end up appreciating and loving music. Not everybody's going to love it on the same level, but some kind of appreciation of of this activity they're in, even if they're not going to go major in it. Not everybody has to do that, but just being a part of this group. But if, if there can be just, you can see some passion from the directors and you know, you know, we know it's hard. You're just tired <laughs> all the time. I've been there. I, I get it. But even, <laughs> but even then, sometimes, even though that, you know, in marching season, you see that a lot, you know, you, everybody's just really tired because of just everything, the busy weekends and stuff. But if there's still yeah. this passion, like, Hey, we just got a little bit longer to go. And, and so there's this pride established in the program. So shall we do some listening? So Carol, we brought out Byzantine Dances. We really love that piece. And can you tell us a little bit about how that one came about? Sure, yeah. Byzantine Dances is probably, it's one of my favorite ones that I've ever ever written. And this one's a grade two, is that correct? Yeah, grade two. Some might consider it a 2.5-ish, but I had written it with grade two in mind. And again, it's one of those I think that sounds a little bit harder than it actually is because I think it has enough repetition in it. So once they get it, they got it. And it's kind of catchy, I think, or that's what people tell me anyway, uh, the little tune. And so when I was writing this, this was um, a commission for Midwest, the Midwest Clinic. And it was a good friend of mine, actually, it's a you know high school here in San Antonio where I live. But they really wanted a, a new grade two to get a new grade two out there because I'm sure you guys know this, but the performing groups at Midwest have to play a variety of grade levels. They can't just play all hard stuff if they're a high school. And one thing that's really special about this particular one is that James Keene conducted it on their concert. I really got to know Mr. Keene um, really well and got to work with him in rehearsal. And he's just so knowledgeable and passionate. And so anyway, yeah, uh, with this one, to be really honest, when I was when I set out to start conjuring this, you know, what is this going to piece? Uh, what is this piece going to be? I thought I was going to write a, some Greek dances. That's kind of what I had in my my mind. I think I want to write some Greek dances, <laughs> and so I watched a lot of Greek dances. Um, thank goodness for the internet and YouTube, and you can just access lots of dances or anything you want to see. But I had already had this kind of melody going in my head. And I knew range-wise it didn't have too much in terms of a skip or anything like that. And I wanted to put something, I just had the slinky kind of, what I call slinky, just a little bit more exotic. Again, not just in a major key. Um, mm-hmm. This little thing that had energy. And I was like, if it had this little grace note, um, that would be very achievable. They'd be able to get it. And they don't even have to do the grace note if they don't want to. It's optional. But I just know lots of little kids would be like, yeah, I want to do it. And again, there's enough repetition. So this little tune kept, working itself into my brain and I couldn't get it out of my head. It's like a, one of those earworms. I was like, this does not sound Greek though. Like, so a lot of the Greek dances I had looked at had a different sort of sound and they would, and I realized it was going to be trickier to make that as a grade two also because some of the Greek dances I noticed there'd be a lot of speeding up and slowing down with how this music would kind of go. And I was like, that's going to be trickier, I think, 
with like second year, third year players. I don't want it to be that hard. I realized as I was kind of playing around with it, it does sound more like maybe the Far East or maybe the um, Near East or something. I'm not sure what, but I realized then the mode that I was kind of singing in, part of it was what's called the Byzantine scale. And that's like if you take your major scale, but you flat the second and you flat the sixth. You know, so you've got those kind of couple flat notes and then it creates an augmented stretch there. I, I know I'm going to start out in the key of B flat. That's where this is going to lay really well for this tune. I definitely don't want B naturals <laughs> for anyone to be playing at this grade too. Again, if it's grade three or four, maybe. And so really I did it where I could do this melody where I never had to really go to that second. And then if I went to a major second, well, that actually becomes what's called the harmonic major. So it's like major at the bottom. And then harmonic at the top. So it's like, okay, the first thing can kind of be like that. And the only reason I'm bringing that up is at some point I realized that's sort of the mode I was in. And I was like, Byzantine, you know, and I was looking at history and this whole region. And, you know, and so then I started to realize the whole, you know, Byzantine empire. And, and eventually that's the land that became now what is, what is Turkey. And so where is Turkey? And so it was, so I was, I was like, what I'm really writing sounds, it gives me the energy idea more of like Turkish dances. So I started watching more Turkish dances and there are these ones called Gypsy Roma dances, which are the high energy ones. They've got the Turkish symbols and all this kind of really cool stuff. And so that just sort of propelled that. And so then I kind of came up with the groove that I thought the low reads could, could really drive it with, you know, at the beginning. And then I thought, you know, it'd be really cool though, if I could get the Byzantine part in there, the scale. So that's why I kind of do this perceived key change in the middle, the middle slowish lyrical section. And it has the little alto sax solo. It really kind of sounds like it goes to E flat for a minute. And so then the sax, the alto sax can play that flat second. So on their instrument, you know, it's concert E flat, but then going to E natural. So then it's C going to C sharp. They can do that. And it was just for a minute. It wasn't long. I knew for grade two, I didn't want there to be this really long involved lyrical middle section to me that starts to put it more into grade three it was just going to be this little bit where you get a little different flavor and that's where I discovered this other type of dance called Zybeck and that's the one I describe in my program notes but it's this kind of if uh, if you could see me but where they sometimes it's a soloistic dancer and they have these outstretched arms and they do the snapping and the whole idea from everything that I was reading about was they're supposed to emulate like a great hawk and it's supposed to be kind of heroic and proud. And so I just kind of came up with that tune that the alto sax could do. And then the clarinets come in. And that's why I put in that choreography. It's actually very meaningful. It's not meant to be trite or silly where you're doing the snapping. Now, the funny thing about that is when I went to the first rehearsal, <laughs> I had it written and let's do this. And so I said, okay, everybody, outstretched arms. Well, all the flutes do that. And what do they do? They're sitting next to each other. So they're all poking each other in the ears and eyeballs. <laughs> oh, and they're just like, that's oh, no. not going to work in band. <laughs> so, oh. It's not going to work on stage. So that's why I had to ch- change it to where you have to put your arms up overhead. And, and then I wanted your palms, you know, a certain way where you could actually see the snapping. And so all of it just, it, you know, sometimes you get these ideas and these pieces of the puzzle come together. And it, but part of it is kind of organic in how it starts to take shape and how it evolves. And this, this piece was definitely that. I love it when pieces do that. And just one thing leads to another. So why don't we take a little listen to it now so our listeners get a little taste of Byzantine dances. 
All right. So the next tune that we're going to talk about here um, is is a tune that I first heard when I was at the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. I don't know how many years ago that was, maybe five or six years. Jen, you might have been there at the same time I was. I don't remember. I think I was. I Yeah, I, I was probably there. Um, and we didn't even know each other yeah. that well then. Oh, we didn't. I didn't. Mm-mm. Ships passing in the night. We did not know each other. <laughs> but I, this was where I first heard this piece, and I thought it was great, not only as a teaching tool, but just a, a great opportunity to play a new march. And it's called March of the Freedom Fighters. It is also a grade two. I love the fact that not only was it something new and accessible for students at that grade level, and now I have eighth grade band students, but I, I use it all the time. Um, I've programmed this piece multiple times uh, as an eighth grade uh, march, and it just teaches the march style in a really great way. It's very succinct. There's a lot of that that traditional march style there. So tell us a little bit about March of the Freedom Fighters. Those were some of my goals um, when I wrote it. I wanted I hadn't done a lot of marches yet. And I certainly hadn't done one at this level. You know, a lot of the marches that are out there are too advanced sometimes for this grade level that we're talking about. Yes, I love like the Carl King marches that are out there and everything. But sometimes the eighth grade band that I have just, you know, it's not not in their wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. So I, I wanted to do one that just had the flavor of what I was trying to portray. So just, you know, freedom. And sometimes you write things because of what's going on in the world. So... Same thing with All for One, One for All. That's another march that I wrote, um, maybe right before this one, I think. But yeah, I wanted to put it in in 2-4, and I wanted to have some syncopation in it, and what I thought was accessible syncopation. So not crazy all the time, but just one figure that they could really, one and and or one te, te, whichever system you use. And then I also thought I could add the dotted 8 16th, and again, if it's not all the time, and it's just with sort of the same finger pattern, and there's enough repetition, I thought it would be a good opportunity to teach that rhythm if you've never introduced it to your students before. And then the percussion, they do have combinations of eighths and sixteenths, which they can totally handle at this level, but where they have some extra accents here or there. But I also wanted to, again, not do all the repeats and everything, but I did want to do a trio that had the typical key change up the fourth, and then have a little mini break strain, give the low brass something to do with a little bit of woodwind interest. Uh, Again, all technique that they can handle at this age level. Oh, and then I love uh, the kind of thing where then you can bring back the main melody, but then have a great like counter melody and maybe a little descant going on at the same time. So it just all comes around and everybody's playing at the end. Just really fun stuff. Well, let's take a listen to it. Okay. Thank you. 
ancient fires. We love all the time changes in there. It's got it's got such great energy. Can you tell us a little bit about ancient fires? Yeah, ancient fires is a pretty recent one. I had a great time collaborating with the director on this because we sort of came up with the idea together. I definitely wanted it to be this inner the vast part to be this energetic section, and then how could I make it a little bit different? And again, where the students are maybe seeing something for the first time. So six, four, but really it's not actually three plus three. It's really four plus two, but still they get to see something different Mm -hmm. on their paper. That's six, four, but again, it's got quarters, eights and an eighth rest that they have been doing those rhythm patterns most likely already. So that, that made it achievable right there, I think. And then you just throw in some three, four. Again, it's not too long. And if you'll notice some of the first three, fours that you encounter, they're just quarter notes. So it's not like when you change or when I change meters, I want to trick them all up and then put all this. But it's where you settle on this. Mm -hmm. I can do three, four and it's these quarter notes. And now we go back to the six, what we were just doing. Again, repetition, a certain amount of repetition is important for them to sort of get it. And then again, some of the trickier or more um, elaborate rhythms would be in the percussion. And then in this one, I just wanted to have some stuff in the middle. And of course, the opening sounds kind of mysterious too. But in the middle, sort of a B section that had some things where you can explore with crescendos and decrescendos. And then that's where some of the percussion get to experiment with crinkly paper that's supposed to sound like fire crackling. Yeah. So the more, the merrier. It doesn't last long. You know, again, I didn't want the piece to be too long or anything. I really appreciate it with this piece. And Jen and I have talked about this on a couple other episodes that with the winds, especially you've got so many different articulations that are specifically marked and lots of dynamic contrast. Sometimes you get pieces at this level and everything is kind of just written with no articulations for long periods of time. So I think that gives the the students a lot to chew on with how detailed they are in their articulations and their their dynamic contrast too. It's it's interesting because sometimes I want to be careful that I don't do put too many of those in. Again, you don't want to overwhelm them. But with this one, it really does affect how it would sound, you know. Da 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 da. da. There needs to be a lift on that last beat 6. And so I really, you know, I definitely had to put a staccato on there to get the sound that I wanted, the style that I wanted. And I wanted the eighth before it to definitely be long. So I was pretty specific. But again, you'll notice if you're looking at wherever it happens first, um, measure if anybody's looking at their score, but like measure 11, well, then measure 12 does the exact same rhythm and the exact same articulations. And then so does the next measure. I feel like if there's enough repetition, they can learn what those are and they'll get it. Lots to chew on for the kids. Definitely. And we've got musicians, you know, in our ensembles that they need that direction. They need it exactly what to put. Like Eric said, we've, we've said in previous episodes, I'm like, I, I kind of stopped buying the pieces that have nothing written over the notes and these long stretches with nothing, you know, even for my, my beginners, the great, the grade one stuff, they have to have something to tell them how to play it. Otherwise it's, it's just a wash, you know? So, um, yeah, we appreciate it. Oh, good. That's good to know. Yeah. Let's take a listen. Thank you. 
right. So for our last listening excerpt, this one was was sent in by a listener whose name happens to be Carol, and uh, it is a uh, <laughs> a piece a piece of music that's a little bit a little bit um, more more demanding than the the three that we've listened to, Kalos Eidos. And what I really appreciated about this piece, although it is in, in the overture style, which is certainly not unknown to the band world, it really is a fresh sounding take on the style. The brass solos, although they're beautifully written, are also very realistic in terms of their expectations, I think, for the level of the students. And this one's what, a grade three? Is that correct? Three and a half? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And it ends quietly. When was the last time you heard an overture style for band that ended quietly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about this one. Sure. Yeah. And just to kind of address that right off the bat, um, basically what I call that is a bookend um, from how it started and then to how it ends. So it starts very minimal instruments that start to layer in and gradually more and more come in and it builds, you know, that kind of thing. And then I wanted it to end sort of the opposite. So that was intentional, sort of when I first started kind of getting into how this was going to go. This was one of those that I did think about form somewhat as I started. Not completely, but I knew I did want a lyrical, again, grade three plus, I did want a, a nice lyrical section in there. Um, but yeah, but the whole thing, Kalos Eros, the uh, subtitle is Kaleidoscope. And so I decided at some point, when I was putting this piece together that I wanted to start um, kind of minimally with just like the mallet instrument and then some other uh, instruments starting to layer in. And then I thought at the end, I would sort of do what I call the reverse bookend where it does sort of the opposite and winds back down again. And then leaving you with hearing only the ocean drum. And so the ocean drum was a very key instrument that I discovered that I just thought was really cool. But it really, to me, that sound reminds me of if you had a huge kaleidoscope and you were turning it. And so that became sort of, um, I kind of decided the middle portion of the piece, the middle middle lyrical section of the piece would be sort of the big kaleidoscope that you're turning. And so that's where I first introduced the ocean gem. But anyway, back to sort of what this is all about. I had known for a long time I wanted to write a piece about a kaleidoscope. So I was like, how am I going to do that? And then I realized that the, um, the words... Kalos and Eidos, they are Greek words. Um, those are the origin of, those make up the origin of the word kaleidoscope. And so Kalos uh, kind of translates to beautiful, and Eidos translates to form or shape. And then scope always refers to like observing or seeing. So when you put those together, the definition becomes the observation of beautiful forms or shapes. And so I thought that was kind of some extra info and kind of neat. Um, so anyway, I started thinking, well, you know, most of us have picked up a kaleidoscope. And so whenever I've picked one up, it doesn't matter. They, you know, they're all different from each other, yet they have things in common. And what do they have in common? Basically different patterns, patterns that are spinning around and different, you know, different shapes and patterns and then different colors. Often it's different colors. So those are the sort of uh, components that I wanted to programmatically um, portray during the piece. So with patterns, I wanted to showcase two different, very uh, differing patterns. One is what I call the slurry pattern. So that's the, um, you know, like the flutes 
started off right when they start playing. There's that three note thing there. When the euphonium solo first comes in, it's three notes slurred. And you can look all the way through the piece. The program notes talk about it more. But that you encounter that all the way through the piece. And then the opposite of that would be something very pointed, articulated. So I actually start the piece with marimba, medium rubber mallets. So it sets up this pulse. Um, and it's, you know, that kind of thing. And then later, you know, brass start coming in. Well, some of the woodwinds, da, da, da. whenever somebody has just lifted staccato on their paper, you see that. Um, but then brass start to sometimes have things like or anything articulated like that is um, kind of falling into that pattern. And so I wanted to just those opposites of those two patterns. And then colors. Okay, well, for me, colors... I, I always talk in terms of colors when what I really mean are timbre, timbres. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I always use the word color. What color are we hearing there? What color are we hearing there? And by the way, people have asked me before, I can't remember what the name of that is, where you, when you hear music, you see different colors. Do you remember what that was? Oh, synesthesia. Had? Yeah. And a lot of people have asked if I have that. I don't think I have that, actually. But um, no. So by colors, I mean timbre. And so what are the ones I wanted to do? Well, I wanted to do... Um, you know, woodwinds, so upper woodwinds, upper brass, then all the low sounding instruments, and then percussion. So those are the different colors I was trying to let you hear all the way through the piece. And I love at the beginning section, um, how there's like pieces that come and go as well. It's, it's not sure. every, you know, it's not just layering and layering. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, you'll, you'll have the trumpets in for a few measures and then, and then they're out. So you, you do have those, those tone colors that coming and going as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely layering. Things build and then and so on. Just so our listeners know, that beautiful euphonium solo at the beginning is cross-cued as well. So if you don't have a yes. euphonium soloist, yeah. there there are uh, other options there too. Yes, the, it fits within the alto sax range and tenor sax range. Yes, there are other, other possibilities. Yeah, and so I kind of um, then decided I would do kind of fast, slow, fast uh, form. Because uh, I wanted this energy, like I'm talking about at the beginning. And if I was going to end it in reverse, well, I needed to have energy at the end too. But I brought back different melody in a certain way. So, I, and I put in the notes, these I call them episodes, these three different episodes. They're somewhat different from each other, yet they also share similar colors and patterns as all kaleidoscopes do. So are you? there are elements in all of them. Um, and, you know, I don't, I always ask people when I'm working with them, with ensembles, you know, when we get to the middle section, measure 58 is where the lyrical middle section starts. Oboe solo, yeah. also cued in flute, so don't worry. Um, but this, and it's got these chords underneath, a dissonant, like an F, a written F against an E natural in the clarinets and stuff. Um, but later then when I, I love, one thing I love to do with when I write music is bring themes back in different ways. So if you take that melody at 58, then when I get to the third episode, um, which is fast and energetic again, um, you know, it starts with articulated low brass, but eventually it becomes sort of our anthem at the end. The third section starts at 95, but where it revs up and everybody, uh, you know, trumpets take the lead on that tune um, is a little bit after that, like at 120. So there you'll start to hear where that melody that was the beautiful oboe solo now comes up uh, back in this more articulated, 
fanfare, just real uplifting kind of way. It builds and then it all starts to wind down again. And like I already mentioned, you get to hear that um, cool ocean drum at the end. And it's basically Mm -hmm. like you're spinning that big kaleidoscope at the end until it finally just comes to rest and stops. You probably don't want to close your concert with this one, but right before would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) All right. Well, let's take a listen to Kalos Eidos. could add some ocean drum to, to hot cross buns I, I i have one you can borrow if you want jen oh do you okay um yeah. I'll, i might yeah. i'll take you up on that anything to spice it up <laughs> 15 years of hot cross buns i'm ready to spice that one up <laughs> okay so. so not to put a plug or anything but if you ever look check out to create a voice that's another great okay. thing three that i wrote and it has a lot of meaning but it actually has hot cross buns uh, motifs no. in there for a certain reason. It's a great three, but it's okay. it's because the person it was written in memory of, he was this amazing educator um, in California. And his favorite group to teach were beginners. Mm-hmm. And so you, if you just pull up that score online, I think you can read the program notes too, but he had this quote and he said, uh, and it's, it almost makes me tear up every time I read it. His name was Chris Anderson. But it said, um, uh, a lot of people consider the first sounds that beginners make on their instruments to be cringeworthy but to me they're the most beautiful sounds because it's the first time that students put a voice to their instruments and his instrument was trombone so I start that piece with trombone solo in honor of him but then later um I and I base the whole oh and the trombone solo starts with um do do re do re mi but it's over these chords and stuff so the whole thing is do re mi but those are the first notes that beginners learn and then i go later i chris anderson apparently had this quirky sense of humor so later i bring it back but in reverse which is as we know mi re do the first notes of one of the first songs we ever play which is hot cross buns and so they do a little bit of this stuff based on hot cross buns and then at the end, that's we cool. bring those notes back in harmony. And that's the satisfaction when you finally get good enough on your instrument, you can play in harmony. So there's a lot of meaning behind that, but there's actually some cro- yeah. hot cross mm. buns in there because of him. That's really sweet. So well, oh, anyway, nice. just FYI. Yeah, yeah. And what was the name of that one? Oh, To Create a Voice. So I named it to after his quote because um, he said that's the first time they put a voice to their instruments. So To Create oh, a Voice. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Carol, we really appreciate you taking the time tonight um, to chat with us about composition and about 
directing and listening to the music. We know it's been a busy weekend. So thank you. <laughs> oh, it has. But thank you so much for inviting me. I've really had a blast talking with you guys and getting to know you. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate your music and the fact that our students love to play it. So thank you. Thank you for that. And sharing all this with our listeners. Indeed. And speaking of sharing with our listeners, Carol has been gracious enough to offer a special uh, discount for our listeners. Carol, how can they uh, how can they take advantage of that? If they wanted to just email me, or if they could just email me and said they listened to this podcast, then um, I could give them twenty percent off of a digital version of one of my pieces that's still published by Aspenwood Music. Thank you. That's awesome. And so what would be the best way for our listeners to get in touch if they if they want to order something or if they just have any questions or want to find out more about you? They could go to my website, which is aspenwoodmusic.com. And there is a contact page on there. Or if they just want to email me, carol at aspenwoodmusic.com. Well, thank you. Thank you so much again. Yeah. This is great. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So listeners, don't forget, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like our episodes, you can also rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Please, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us, other band directors, other musicians you know, and get the word out about about our podcast and and, uh, help us spread the word. And, you know, we've got some uh, great ideas down in the pipeline, and some of them take a little extra money. So if you really like our podcast, you could consider becoming a monthly supporter. You could even do it for a dollar a month or more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can do get the link in our show notes, or you can go to anchor.fm slash take a cue. You can find us all over the place on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to reach out to us and you have ideas about new episodes, topics for us to talk about, feedback about what you heard today, uh, reach out, get in touch. Well, Jen, I think that's about it for this episode. I think so, too. All right. Well, have a great week at school. Thank you. You, too. Go make some great music. 